Welcome to the podcast for Epworth United Methodist Church in Berkeley, California. I'm Pastor Kristen Stone King. Our mission at Epworth is to live out God's love for all. We strengthen our faith as we worship, study, develop a creative, supportive community, and serve others. Together, we encourage each other, challenge each other, and welcome all people on their journey of faith. We are a reconciling congregation, meaning that persons of all sexual orientations and gender identities are welcomed to help transform our church and our world into the full expression of Christ's inclusive love. We are a sanctuary church advocating for the rights and dignity of immigrants, and we stand in solidarity with the movement for Black Lives. blends a taste of the music that we experience here in worship on Sunday mornings, along with a scripture reading and a message. scripture reading today is from Jeremiah 9 verses 17 to 21. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider and call for the morning women to come. Send for the skilled women to come. Let them quickly raise a dirge over us so that our eyes may run down with tears and our eyelids flow with water. For a sound of wailing is heard from Zion, how we are ruined. We are utterly shamed because we have left the land, because they have cast down our dwellings. Hear, O women, the word of the Lord, and let your ears receive the word of his mouth. Teach your daughters a dirge, and each to her neighbor a lament. Death has come up into our windows. It has entered our palaces to cut off the children from the streets and the young men from the squares. This is the word of God. Mm-hmm. 
so now let's pray together as we move into this time the words of preparation which are printed in your bulletin or on your digital bulletin let us let us pray gracious and loving god may the words of my mouth and meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight O god our strength and our redeemer amen well in the opinion section of the los angeles times last month a woman wrote about the aftermath of a shocking and unimaginable loss the irony was she was a humorist but she said she she couldn't stop crying she said she was still crying way past what she imagined would be considered appropriate. And she just wasn't able to return to her previous level of activity. She said, I fantasized about a place for people like me, the island of grieving and useless folks. Meals would be served. There would be live Irish music concerts during which the entire audience would be allowed to sob. No one would try to make anyone feel better. There would be dogs, many dogs. They, of course, always make us feel better. As we began this series, Reality, Grief, Hope, last week, we focused last week on reality and the kind of exceptionalism that deludes us into thinking that nothing terrible should happen to us that we should somehow escape the sorrows and sufferings of life. But bad things do happen. Life does move apace differently than we imagined it would move. And as we face that reality, we are invited to return to God. As we embrace the reality of loss and sorrow and suffering, we are returned to the ground of our being and in whom we can all, we all trust can be placed. This acceptance of reality is like a key and a lock and we're moved from reality straight into the heart of grief. This progression of, uh, that Hebrew scripture scholar Walter Brueggemann um, has named his, his book, Reality, Grief, Hope, on which this series is, is based, suggests that just as the acceptance of reality gives way to grief, grief will give way to hope, right? But actually that can't be taken for granted. That isn't uh, a, a progression that happens on a timeline that moves um, in an orderly fashion. Dominant culture in this country, and especially when that dominance is related to race or gender or class, has a tendency to resist grief. And as a result, there is not a communal understanding of what grief looks like, how to grieve, and how to be with those who are grieving. Our scripture today comes from Jeremiah and is a continuation of the prophet's response to the destruction of the temple and the exile of ancient Israel to Babylon. 
The prophets, of course, anticipated the destruction of Jerusalem. They were bearing witness at that time to the surface, the surface observance of an ostensibly religious people who had so many other things to do before paying attention to God. Or as Brueggemann says, perhaps their anticipation of the destruction uh, was the inexorable outcome of policies of abuse and exploitation in which widows, orphans, and immigrants, the canaries of any social system, had suffered enough. And so this destruction does come, this exile does come, this loss of everything they imagined would be their lives does come. And yet even in the face of this reality, there continues to be a pull toward denial. As Brueggemann explains, the urban elite, of course, do not weep. Their ideology is that they suck it up and move on. But their sense of loss lingers beneath what is acknowledged. It has, however, no compelling power to transform as long as it remains unacknowledged. For that reason, the prophetic counter of grief expressed may be an antidote to denial. The prophetic task amid a culture of denial is to embrace, model, and practice grief in order that the real losses in our lives can be acknowledged. As a body of people who live with the legacy of the prophets of old, how do we pick up this particular prophetic task as the church today? To embrace, model, and practice grief. As much as we need to grieve, it's not easy. It requires an abandon, a giving up of control that can sometimes seem as unwelcome as the original grief itself. In Jeremiah's time, the same challenge existed. As much as it was needed, grieving did not come easily. And so there developed a profession at that time, that of the mourning women. Jeremiah references this in today's scripture with these words, consider now call for the wailing women to come, send for the most skillful of them. Mourning women were a recognized profession in ancient times. Womanist scholar Renita Weems talks of this in her book, Just a Sister Away, when she says, there was something peculiar in the nature of women. It was believed that um, that, that made crying easier for them. Women were invited to express in tears and moans what in a misogynist society no doubt was too dangerous to express with words. And so mourning women were called in and raised in loud wails and lamentations the sighs and the sorrows of the community. Weems says there were women who could penetrate the heart of even the fool. 
They could look beyond merriment and see tragedy, beyond tragedy and see death, beyond death and see God. Three years ago, I preached a sermon lifting up the life and ministry of Rachel Held Evans. You may remember that time and you may remember Rachel Held Evans. Hopefully you are familiar with her body of work that lives on. Rachel was a, a young woman, a theologian who had chronicled her transformation from even the evangelicalism of her youth to an owned and complex and engaged faith that eventually landed her in the, the Episcopal Church. But her journey wasn't so much about um, any particular denomination. Her journey was about giving, giving voice to an, an authentic engagement with a God that wasn't mediated by uh, a structure that sought to put her in a box. She gave a demographic of women the right to question and critique and to search for a God who allowed mystery and messiness. After a brief illness, she died at the age of 37. Her sister, Amanda Held Opelt, was one of the many who were plunged into a deep grief over her surprising death. The faith that Amanda had held suggested that God was weaving some redemptive purpose through her storyline, or that there, was, there had to be some kind of silver lining to what she'd experienced. But that wasn't her experience at all. She said, grief was absolutely horrifying. It was just emotionally shattering. And the peace I prayed for, it didn't feel like it came. I still don't know what the redemptive purpose of all that I've been through is. And so she began to look deeply into what grief was about. She researched and she came upon the practice of Irish keening. The Irish are known for their wakes, which despite being a gathering in grief can actually get quite rowdy. And the climax of the wake is a practice of communal wailing in which women, known as in, in Gaelic as quinda, I'm sure I'm not saying that very well, um, or, they were, or the, they, they were known as the lead wailers, would come in and lead the whole room in a communal wail. They would begin by gently moaning and weeping, and then they would start to maybe sing and then they would sing words in, in tribute to the deceased and speak out the words that people needed to hear. And then the wailing would just kind of lead into cries and moans in which everyone in the whole room would join. They would lament the one who had just died. But it was also common for those in the room to wail a tribute to others they'd lost, maybe a year ago, maybe five years ago. It seems the humorist from LA, who I, I mentioned as I opened today's message, who fantasized about a place of communal grieving where there were Irish songs and dogs was actually imagining an Irish keening. When Amanda Held Opelt discovered this practice, she began to find a space that she could live in. 
She said, so often grievers are commended for kind of keeping it together, for their resilience, for their fortitude, for their stalwart exterior. But this ritual is the affirmation and permission to completely fall apart in your grief. Interestingly, the practice of keening started to wane in the 1950s and is much less common in Ireland today. Why? Well, in the 1950s, the Irish began to travel more. They began to see other parts of the world and other cultures, and keening began to seem primitive, not very sophisticated. And there's also evidence that the church in Ireland had tried for centuries to stamp out the practice of keening. There's a Latin phrase that captured this, which is non culp. I'm trying all, I'm, I'm clearly into different languages today that I'm not very good at, but uh, I, won't, I won't go into Latin. What it means is we do not blame emotion, we blame the excess. Held Opelt found a document from the 1600s attempting to ban keening, saying that it was too boisterous and it wasn't fitting for a people who had the hope of Christ. But you know what? I think Christ wailed on the cross, or at least until the point when he had no more energy. We know he wept. When we encounter the witness of who God is in scripture, what we encounter is one who feels. There's so much more in the Bible about God's emotional response. God cried, God was angry, God was, God, God was frustrated, God was sorrowful, than about God's thoughts. In fact, I can't recall any part where the Bible says, and God thought to God's self, or some description of God suppressing God's emotion. The witness of Jeremiah is that in the face of what has happened to Israel, God is calling in the wailing women. What's interesting also is that the keeners were often also midwives. They were people who assisted the community with being in the depths of their emotion, the coming together and the bringing forth of the life that is. And so may we be a community that makes space for all and be with one another in the depths of our grief. May we embrace this core task of the prophetic church following the voice of Jeremiah, who was known as the weeping prophet. And so now I want to ask you to join me. I thought about this and I thought, are we, are, can we wail together? <laughs> and maybe we could work up to that, but I wanna, I wanna invite us into something that is a beginning. I wanna invite us to sigh together in an audible way. And so in a minute, I'm going to ask us to, to close our eyes or keep them open if you prefer, to breathe in and then to breathe out with your full voice, to sigh with your voice. Maybe it turns into a wail, and we'll do that together three times. 
podcast for Epworth United Methodist Church in Berkeley, California. Wherever you're located, we'd love for you to take a next step in growing in faith in this community. Our online worship is at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings on Facebook, YouTube, and on our website at epworthberkeley.org. Or you can fill out an online connect card at epworthberkeley.org backslash connect. Have a great week.
Thank you.